Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening. If you're a current nonprofit leader or you hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit experts who are really on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would, do me a favor, share this episode with one other person so that we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Well, I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Dr. Mary Highland, who brings a wonderful experience as a former executive director herself, but now as a consultant and a podcast host. And by the way, you need to check out her very popular Inspired Nonprofit Leadership podcast, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But you'll also enjoy this conversation where Mary and I discuss her premise, which, by the way, is the core of her upcoming book. And that premise, again, is that all nonprofit board problems fall into one of three categories. And let me repeat that. All nonprofit board problems fall into one of what she calls three dimensions. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation because it's a mental checklist for you as a nonprofit leader to learn from Mary what exactly are these three dimensions. By the way, she labels them capacity, connection, and culture. But more importantly, you'll learn how to address them if they do, in fact, exist at your nonprofit. Lots of great information here and resources to boot. So make sure you check out the show notes. This is episode number 104. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources Mary and I discuss, as well as more information on her and the great work she's doing at Highland Consulting. Of course, you can find out more about her inspired nonprofit leadership podcast, as well as a preview of her upcoming book. Speaking of resources, when you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. We're on all of the primary social media platforms and get on our email list so you can get free weekly resources, podcast episodes just like this one, and hopefully you'll find information that may lead to a conversation. Let us know if we can help you re-engage your board or maybe help you with a strategic plan for your nonprofit or help you personally on your journey to nonprofit leadership through our coaching, training, or mastermind programs. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mary Highland. Mary, thank you for joining me on the path. Oh, thank you for having me, Pat. Well, I'm excited for this conversation. You've had a wonderful nonprofit leadership journey. You've literally seen every aspect of a nonprofit <laughs> organization and, and then some. And you yep. also are a host of a wonderful podcast called the Inspired Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. And you're working on a book that we're going to talk about. So lots of things yeah. to unpack. I guess before we do that, Mary, given all of your accomplishments, I wonder, is there something you're particularly proud of as we kind of talk about your journey to start? Well, if I had to pick one thing, uh, I, after about 20 years of being an executive, I was involved in this, we don't have time for this story, but I was involved in two nonprofit mergers. And within six months, basically four nonprofits came together to create a new organization. And what I'm proud of is the fact that the new board of that organization decided to select me 
to be the CEO and lead that new group of people coming together to create something that would have more impact for people who have serious mental illnesses. That was our mission. So I was really proud of that. It was a huge challenge to go from a nonprofit I was leading of a budget of about $5 million um, to a budget of $20 million. So a lot of development there for me and also a lot of opportunity. So it's fantastic. Well, you should be proud of that. And I can only imagine the complexity that you were having to to manage the personalities, the dynamics. And we'll talk about that. I'm guessing some of that experience may have influenced your book and other of your publications. But, you know, I noted in your bio, Mary, that you started as a volunteer. You know, what, Mm -hmm. when did it hit you that, yes, I might want to get into nonprofit leadership? Well, you know, I'm not sure so many of us just sort of evolve into things, but I did start volunteering in my downtown community in San Jose with uh, people with mental illness. And I knew from the beginning, I mean, it's not my, uh, wasn't my goal to be a, a therapist or a counselor or anything direct like that. But I began Uh, frankly, I had a very interesting volunteer experience and there were parts of it that weren't that good. And I began to think about if I was managing a volunteer program, what kinds of things would I want to put in place? How would I want to do that? And it just got me on the path of thinking about leadership and management in nonprofits and uh, went from there. I love that. And I I know a lot of our listeners, uh, both of our shows, um, are pondering nonprofit leadership. So it's always fascinating for me to ask someone like you, you know, how did you get there? And of course, you continue to build upon your experience and then have developed a very successful consulting practice. And I guess mm-hmm. with that, uh, you started a podcast. So I can't help but as a fellow <laughs> podcaster ask you, uh, what was the motivation to start Inspired Nonprofit Leadership, the podcast? Well, A couple of years ago, I mean, it's been out since the uh, December of 2018. Uh, A couple of years ago, I went to uh, one of those conferences for building your business. And this one was called, you know, Your Authority Academy. And (laughs) um, long story short, the guy who um, was leading it is a podcast expert. He actually has four podcasts. And he kept saying, and I frankly... Pat and I had never even listened to a podcast at this point. Wow. And he said, this is one way you can get your voice out there. You can have more reach. And this was what I really was caring about at the time was it's one thing to be in my community, even in my region. But I really felt that after all these years of experience that I wanted to have more reach to my voice. And so I started looking around uh, at that time to get on to other people's non-profit podcasts, but many of them were about fundraising and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, that's not my expertise. And the more I looked, the more I felt nudged to create my own that really focused on practical leadership things. And of course, I've discovered others who are doing similar things like you since, but at the time I thought, well, this way I can have uh, do it the way I want to do it. Well, it's been fantastic. And you are indeed a pioneer, really, 
in the nonprofit leadership space. And so no surprise, you and I would get along well because we are, <laughs> we're thinking about similar topics right. and applying them. Um, let me ask you something. I've been talking to guests lately, as you have, Mary, about just staying organized in this virtual space. And I wonder, as you work with nonprofit leaders, have you seen good examples of how they're managing in what has been clearly a difficult virtual environment? Well, you know, I don't think there's any one size fits all. I will share that I have, I started, kicked off a leadership group of executives, a peer support kind of mentoring coaching group that I call the nonprofit leadership circle. And I pulled that together for a variety of reasons. I've done a lot of that in person, but I wanted to do it virtually. This was before COVID. And we kicked it off. And the first meeting was March 20th. Wow. And the fact that it was virtual really was a gift to everybody. And I would say that everyone was doing something really unique to their individual nonprofits because the challenges were so unique in terms of what they could do and couldn't do. And some did better, um, some practically closed. Um, There was really no one thing, except I would say that coming together and getting peer support and having some way of sharing with others what they were doing, I think was a really important strategy for them. That's great advice, Mary. I think there's such an isolation, isn't there, in this yes. world? I think there's isolation even outside of the pandemic. Nonprofit leaders are, are often overworked and under-resourced, and it's easy to get isolated. So it sounds like you've right. created an environment where they can support each other. Right, right. Well, that's the goal. That was the goal. Well, so it's I, still going. We're going strong, <laughs> and I'm thinking of developing another one. But that's I, These exist all over, but a lot of them are in person. So um, this has been an interesting experiment because some of the executives were very resistant. They had been in my in-person executive, what we called a round table then. Right. Um, they had been in that with me. And they said, I don't know if I want to do this virtually and when they thought they had a choice. Yeah, and right. um, once they got on it and started doing them, some of them said, you know, this is so much more convenient. I don't have to get in the car. I don't have to go anywhere, you know, whatever. So it different things for different people, obviously. Well, and again, you and I think along the same lines. I started a mastermind, the term I'm mm-hmm. using. And similarly, I thought it might be live. We went virtual. And I do think it's been important for people to connect during this strange time and the accessibility, right? It allows you to perhaps reach a larger geography um, with the virtual access. It does. uh, You have been studying, of course, literally from your experience as an executive director overseeing a merged nonprofit, lots of issues around boards. And I'm fascinated by your point. When we had a previous conversation, you said, you know, basically all nonprofit board challenges fall into three dimensions. And so I think, Mary, maybe you could start. That concept was the genesis of your book. Is that correct? It was was the core of my book. I did some research Um, years ago. I had a, when I started consulting, I had a friend who was in marketing and he said, what problem are you trying to solve? And 
I was resistant to saying there's one problem with the board because there's so many different problems <laughs> with boards. Right. And I started to identify them all. And um, then I started to look at some case studies. And this took place over several years. And eventually, it's it's interesting how an insight comes to you. Right. And who knows how it comes. But I came up with three dimensions of boards, capacity, connection, and culture. And of course, connection, I always have a little sidebar saying that's really about relationships, but I wanted to have three C's. Yeah, so, <laughs> good. And I went through that entire list, you know, all of my experience with nonprofits, at least 100 cases at the time. And every single problem that emerged may not have been the stated problem, but every single problem that emerged for the boards fit into one of those three categories. And after I came up with the idea, I continued to test it by saying, does this fit in one of these? And there are two dimensions of each of them. One is a people dimension and the other is a process dimension. So that's a model that I uh, eventually said, why am I not writing about this? I want to get this out there. Uh, and I think part of it was triggered, Patton, because people were calling me and saying, you know, if you could, the executives were calling me and saying, you know, could you just come teach my board their roles and responsibilities? They, they just not get it, you know, the micromanaging, the interference in daily operations. And I began to realize that the belief was, and still is, very pervasive, that if we just train people and give them knowledge, that things will be different. But and that may be true for some. But not all, right? But not all. And there's often more going on. And that was kind of what I was discovering and what the the dimensions deal with legitimate issues that training and and maybe a, a simple thing could fix but beyond that if that's not changing anything what else could be going on i'm excited to unpack that because i could not agree more i'm sold on your premise <laughs> that there there are yeah. a lot of issues because like you i hear from executive directors and it seems to me i i hear kind of both ends of the spectrum either my board is micromanaging me driving me crazy or they're disengaged. And I bet yes. both of those issues will fall within your three C's, these Absolutely. three dimensions. But well, let's unpack the first one. So what does it mean if a board has a challenge or an organization has a challenge of capacity? And you said, again, there are two parts to that as well. Well, it the, well, there's several little parts. There's the people side. So let's talk about that first. The people right. side is, you know, your typical, do you have the right people on your board? Are they in the right seats? Uh, is this really the right people for your board? Do you have enough of them? Because some boards, a small core, do all the work. Uh, others, you talked about being disengaged. I mean, this is all part of a diff of another dimension around connection. But well, for the capacity, you need to have, you know, like Goldilocks, just the right number in the right place. Right. And but another dimension of your board's capacity is the executive director. And I don't think people think of themselves that way if they're in that role, because you're part of that leadership team if you're the executive. 
And your capacity personally matters. And your ability and investment in your time with your board, all of that is about capacity. How much time do you have? Are you spending it wisely with your board? Um, you know, we could talk a long time about that, but right. those are things that you can deal with at the capacity level. The process side is really all about your board's uh, policies, some of the practices that are, you know, do you have something in place that you're supposed to have? You know, how are your meetings going, for example? Those are kind of a capacity process issue. Are you being efficient in your meetings? Those things fall into that dimension of the board. Yeah, I love that. And I just, uh, my wheels are turning around so many of these topics that you're right. I think our nonprofit leader listeners are wrestling with. Let me ask you a couple questions related to that, Mary. One, do you advocate a certain size for a board of directors, or does it just completely vary based on the organization? Well, I don't advocate a specific size, but I do recommend that you not have a board of, say, more than 20. Yeah, good. Or less than maybe uh, seven or eight. And, And that's because... While we don't have a lot of actual research that says what size a board should be, people have tried to figure that out. Right. But what we do have research on is what size an effective team is. And uh, one thing I, I delve into in the book in the connection chapter is how the board becomes a team and that effective boards are really effective teams. And teams are typically the bad, you know, good ones are nine to 12 people. Now you can always have a few more. And I think the average board in the United States right now has about 15 members. So I think you're, you know, kind of around the sweet spot when you're looking at that. That um, makes sense. But it's likely that nine to 12 nucleus, isn't it? Even if I have a larger roster, that's going to be the critical element of board success. And your point is, if you get much more over 20, you're probably becoming unwieldy and ineffective. Yeah. Well, you're not a team anymore. You're you're too big. You maybe never were a team to begin with. A team is connected. People are connected to each other. They have a shared vision of what they're working on together. And they have agreements about how they're going to get that work done. And uh, it it goes well beyond that. And, and that's really important, I think, for people to understand those group dynamics when they're thinking about a board. That's so well put. And I, I'm also struck by your point, Mary, that the executive director needs to consider their capacity. You know, a lot of times I think we look <laughs> at board issues in isolation, right? And you're yeah. saying, you know, this is not an arm's length arrangement. I've, as an executive director, is, is it your point that a lot of executives aren't investing the time in these board relationships, or they don't have the time that, could, that therefore the capacity issue. I think I think a lot of it is they don't feel they have the time, and they don't. I don't think recognize how much time it really does take. I think it's really important for those of you listening who are executives to be sure your board also understands that it takes your time to support them to be effective and to be a part, a constructive part of that relationship so that you have an effective leadership team at the top. 
your leadership and the board's leadership are critical together. And you have a board chair you need to invest in. You need to invest in relationships with all of your board members. And you have a role relative to this board being an effective team. I mean, there's lots of places. And you don't have unlimited capacity. And right. so many executives are, are just stretched way too thin. Uh, they're exhausted. And when it comes time to choose where you're going to put your energy, um, for I think understandably for many, the board is not a place you're going to go readily anyway. But right. it will make a huge difference. And it's really important to your nonprofit. I just don't think people are talking about the amount of time that should be in the executive's job for board work and anything related to the board, and then make everything else realistic relative to that. Great point to reevaluate job descriptions, or at least board's awareness of job descriptions and that yes. reality. And Mary, I get, I take it your point about efficient meetings suggests you've seen a lot of bad meetings in your day. <laughs> and um, or, oh are, are we having too many meetings or is it just the meetings we have are just not well done? Well, I can't speak to frequency of meetings, just like I can't really speak to how many people to be on the board. I will say that you need to meet often enough to get your important work done. Yeah. And that may often be, a, as you know, Pat, a committee's meeting. But if you don't, how, how are you going to have an effective team if you're never coming together right. to talk about what matters, to decide how you're doing on the big stuff, the important things? So I, I don't think it's, the frequency needs to be enough, but it is very unique to each board in that regard. Um, I think, you know, certainly once a month is plenty for the board as a whole. Right. But I would say quarterly, I start to get uncomfortable. I know great big national boards, maybe that works at that level, but it's a very different dynamic at that level. I mean, supposing you miss one quarterly board meeting, how can you be an effective board member when you don't aren't even active for six months? I mean, maybe you're on a committee, but great point. That doesn't foster teamwork, like you said, right, Mary? No, and I think it comes down to that. That's sort of the standard that I would encourage everyone to measure their processes, their structure, and things again is against us. You know, what are we trying to accomplish as a board, and are we are we doing it? And what yes. is it going to take to do it? Well put. All right, let's talk about the second C, connection. Oh, Again, the second you, you, C is connection. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you had to have a C word about, though, right, Mary? You had to have right. a C word. It's good. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's all about relationships. And in my book, I talk about relationships with the executive and the board and among the board members. Everybody gets it that there's a lot of relationships outside the nonprofit that the board's involved with. But that's not the focus here in, in uh, what I'm talking about. And I think that what's so important here is that it doesn't matter who you've got on your board, how many people you've got on your board. If you are not in a trusting relationship with that person, it's not going to work as well as it would otherwise. And I think that the investment, this kind of comes back to the capacity issue. Right. You know, the investment in building relationships means you have to take time to get to know each other. And just one quick point and 
you know, I don't want to get off on this, but when I did my research on the relationship between the executive director and the board chair, that was for my doctorate, what I learned, and it's no surprise, was all about trust. But there's a level of trust that I call identification-based trust that is the highest. And what I found is that the board chairs and executives who had this identification-based trust, right. they were accomplishing amazing things in the organization, through the board, with the board. And um, the identification-based trust is when you don't just know somebody, you identify with them. So you have to get a little more personal. And some of us resist that thinking that's not professional. So I just wanted to make that point that when you're building connections among your board, you need to get appropriately personal at some level. You want to get that trust higher because you're going to be closer. You're going to care about each other more. You're going to be more invested in effective work together. Because I I take it you've seen the, the negative side of that when there's not trust. That oh, just yeah. creates all kinds of problems. And, and that are you seeing that from both sides, board chairs who don't quite trust their executive director Absolutely. or vice versa? Vice versa, too. Um, it's just like, you know, high trust relationships are there, but these low trust relationships are there. And this is where the dimensions go deeper. So capacities at one level, if you have people micromanaging you, and you think it's because they don't know the job of being a board member, training them may work, but if it doesn't, you've got to think about this issue of connection. Do they trust you? How do they view how competent you are? Maybe they're micromanaging you because they're not comfortable taking on the responsibility of being a board member without controlling you a little more than they should be. So it could be at this other deeper dimension that your issue rests. So just training people isn't going to change anything. That's so true. And I, back to your point about capacity, I can see the executive director listening saying, look, I just don't have time, but it seems Mary, it would be well worth my time to take my board chair for coffee once a month or something. Is that kind of what you mean? Or what do you suggest? Yes. And you know, I mean, uh, Obviously, when when people are able to get the book and look at it, you'll see, I, I really promise you that if you are investing in your board, it's going to save you time and resources. It's it, you know, it takes a little up front, but the reality is that having effective relationships and having an effective board are going to save you time in the long run. You're not going to be running around putting out fires, dealing with issues that just aren't going to come up because you've got a good, strong board yep. and a great relationship. Well put. All right. Well, let's talk about the third one. Culture. A culture. Yeah. What yeah. do you mean by that? That's a word that gets thrown around a lot. What do you mean it, by it? it in does. This sense? Well, culture is made up. Your organizational culture is made up of the patterns of behavior that you engage in. And the word patterns is what's so important. I don't wanna get academic here, people can look up some stuff about organizational culture. Sure. But what happens is the patterns become so ingrained that they become automatic and then they become unconscious. So culture can be the beliefs, the mindsets, the values, the traditions, the just the way we do thing around here, things around here, 
that really underlie what happens in the boardroom. And if you're thinking that, uh, for example, I, I had a client who every year the board would agree they were going to do some fundraising. And they got it that it was important to the strategic plan and the mission. And the executive would create a, a fund development plan. And there was a role for the board. And the board would always say, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. But then they never did. Well, their culture was, we don't do fundraising. And nobody talked openly about that assumption or that belief or that pattern of behavior. They just kept talking about the surface issue of, well, we've got to get some money. Um, this happens a lot in board recruitment, right. where I see their underlying beliefs. And there are things that people say, frankly, equity, inclusion, and diversity, I think this falls you know, straight in this area of culture, because if you really value something, I think you can make it happen. Now that's oversimplified, I acknowledge, but often there's this underlying mindset. Maybe it's just about, we won't be able to find people. Well, if you believe that you're not going to find you won't. <laughs> All right, Mary. So if I, but if I'm a new executive director, I sense this underlying culture issue, and it's a problem. What can I do about it? Oh, great question, Patton. The executive director has a role in all of this. You know, one thing that I was concerned about is executive would say, well, this is the book that tells my board how to be. No, <laughs> right. this is a book. I wrote this for executive directors, and you have a role, and you can be empowered to do things. And one of the things you can do around the culture is you don't stand up in front of your board or go to a board meeting and say, you know, you guys have this bad belief or you, you know, you, the culture of the board is wrong, but you can ask questions. You can ask questions like, well, we said we were going to do this. What's getting in the way? What's broken? Um, where's the disconnect here? There are ways for you to highlight the inconsistencies between what people are saying and what they're doing. And that's how you really bring to surface these underlying cultural issues. I mean, that's the main way. There's other ways too, but that's the main way uh, to do that. Makes total sense. And I'm struck by all three of the C's, Mary, how well you articulate these issues. And it seems to me back to the calls you were taking, I'm an executive director, come fix my board. Yeah. It's is it fair to say your message is no, we got we you need to be part of this solution and not just assume it's the board's problem. Oh, yes. And I I, I want executives to feel empowered that they're not helpless Good or point. stuck. Now, you know, I do acknowledge that there are times when things are really, really difficult, particularly in the relationship and the connection side, and also in the culture side, where regardless of what you do people are not receptive. You know, people don't change, organizations don't change. If there isn't first some awareness of what is wrong or what could be better, actually it doesn't have to be bad. Right. And that people wanna go there. So I do wanna be fair and say, you know, you're not gonna change everybody overnight if they don't wanna go there. Yeah, good but point. But it allows you to at least bring up and bring out the real issues if you begin to get these insights that it's deeper than just 
what a training issue can address. Well, you've lifted up two that I run into a lot. And I wonder if, number one, the lack of clarity. My board doesn't seem to understand its role, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one you heard and have heard, I'm sure, a lot. The other one, the underlying fundraising question. You know, <laughs> the, the board member like, hey, I didn't sign up to be a fundraiser uh, or it wasn't clear right. to me. But are those the two headlines or do you find there are other kind of inherent issues that you run into around this stuff? Oh, I think there are issues across the board. Um, I hear the, you know, roles and responsibilities a lot, but I think it's also just about, uh, it can be about alignment. You know, you want to go one way with the organization and you've got some board members who are risk averse. They're not willing to try something new. They don't want you to try that new program. I had an executive who was really clear. They had a fabulous model. They'd done all the work they needed to do to really understand the critical elements of that model. And she wanted to work on getting it replicated in a neighboring county. Right. And uh, if board members, and this is a cultural thing, if you have more board members who are risk averse than board members who are willing to say, that's fabulous, we'll figure out how to get there right. and go for it. Uh, you're going to have a, a issue, but it's a cultural issue and an alignment issue with you. So those things I've seen, um, well, and a, a lot of other things too. And I think some of it is, is again, comes back to who you have on the board, understanding that you want to tie your board composition to your strategic goals. It isn't about you have to check off these professions. So I think that it's it's all related to how your board becomes a strategic asset for you, uh, you know, versus just an oversight group. Right, right. And well, and I'm struck again by your comment. We need to surface some of these issues. It seems like a lot of the cultural problems are because we're not having open and perhaps back to trust. Yes. We're not having these conversations. So I'm guessing you would advocate boards need to dedicate some time to let oh. these conversations mm -hmm. and topics surface? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, effective groups are gonna have a time when they say, how are we doing? It, it's a more informal assessment than, you know, I'm not talking about a big board self-assessment though, you gotta do that every couple of years. But I think it's it's goes back to your point, the patent about the relationships too. People aren't going to speak up if there's not a trusting environment, if there's not a safe environment. So we kind of have to back up and make sure we have in place around the connections, enough trust with each other. And the board has developed as a team in order to then begin to have the conversations about the culture issues if they're there. Yeah. So it, it's going deeper, going deeper. I use the metaphor in the book of a tree. The capacity is all the leaves, all the parts and pieces. Right. The connection is the branches and the trunk, and you need a solid trunk. That's that solid <laughs> connections. Right. And the culture is the root system that's mostly hidden. It's a great way to illustrate it. Speaking of resources you provided, in addition to the book that we'll note in our show notes, you wrote a great report called The Six Steps for Unleashing the Potential of your nonprofit board. And so I'm guessing some of the themes we've discussed perhaps is in that as well, but maybe you could speak to that article and th that whole concept of how do we release 
or unleash the potential of our board. Right, right. Well, it's a it's a short read because you know we're not going after a, a whole book here, but really that it it starts with uh, some context before I get to the six steps is why do boards matter? You know, I'm I'm with Simon Sinek about we need to understand our why. And if you understand the potential of what a board can do for you, that is really important for you to be motivated to go the distance to make sure you're getting that great value from your board. So that's part of it. Um, then I have 10 characteristics of effective boards based on my research and study and a little mini assessment in there where you can go in and you can say, well, how's my board doing in each of these 10 things? And then the six steps really are to use that mini assessment to have a conversation with your board chair, agree that you're going to engage the full board in a, in a full assessment of the board, have some leadership on the board that's going to be the shepherds and the stewards of that process, the champions of that, decide after you do that what you think could be better and what you all would like to work on improving, implement your plan, and then you get some support if you need it. You know, get some help with resources, with information, with other people's experience, with, you know, whatever it's going to take for you to get that board moving in the right direction. So it's, it's short, but it has a, a lot of key steps outlined there. Uh, clearly, you could unpack every one of those steps and and really <laughs> spend some time. And you should, and because I I wonder, Mary, I don't think a lot of nonprofit boards spend time in self evaluation. And you made nope. the point that they all should, both yeah. formally and informally. But do you see uh, effective evaluation going on at the board level, or what would have been your observations there? Um, generally, I don't see effective assessments. And right. I have to say, uh, full disclosure here, I, I created a board self-assessment that I do with boards because I wanted to see an assessment that was evidence-based, nice. where the board members were saying, this is what an effective board does. Are we doing that? Versus some rating scale from zero to five that means nothing. And every single board member has a different definition of what a five means. I mean, <laughs> right. there's so many methodological and validity and reliability issues with the stuff that's out there. Um, anyway, I don't want to get technical in that regard. <laughs> we but, can take you down that path, I can see. Right. But it's subjective, right? Your point is many of these are just simply subjective, feel They're good. Too yeah, review. And some subjective stuff is fine. You know, yeah. what's your experience of being on your board and the advantage of using a third party? It doesn't have to be me, obviously, but the advantage of using a third party is that people are going to speak up. Um, you know, if you have a board committee leading your board assessment, you're asking peers to tell you what's wrong with your group. And that can be very hard. You have to have a very strong uh, culture of valuing learning and trusting each other to really get the full information in that process. So uh, it's worth spending more time to do it well and do it maybe every two years versus every year. Short check-ins about how are we doing are very important and those right. are fine, but that's, that's not a full assessment. Well, what's an example of the evidence you'd be looking for to your point? It's evidence-based 
Can you give an example of what type of evidence you might look for to evaluate a board's effectiveness? Um, well, the the obvious stuff that's observable is people come to meetings, people participate in meetings. I feel comfortable speaking up even if I disagree with the board. Good some point. of the items are about you personally, but some of them are about your observations of the board. Uh, I know our bylaws and our our board adheres to our bylaws. You know whether that's going on or not. That's not a matter of on a scale from zero to five, does your board adhere to their bylaws? Um, the relationship, we, uh, we, are, we communicate effectively with our executive director. Um, things like that, where right. it's about right. your own experience that you can talk about legitimately, not an opinion of a rating of something you think the board is doing well or not doing well. No, that's so, fantastic. Well, I, again, I'm going to encourage our listeners to utilize the resources, Mary, you have brought up. We'll link to them, of course, in the show notes. And I guess I want to, as we move to the closing here, think about when you were part of that merged multi-nonprofit merger. Were there any lessons around board management then? I can only imagine you were dealing with a fire hose of uh, personalities and cultures and all that. But I wondered what what sh- sticks with you now as you think back about that. Actually, you know, it's a really good question, but um, I had a fabulous experience. So this may not be the story you're, you're expecting to hear. <laughs> That's okay. The good each news is board, okay. Yeah. Each board from the four nonprofits selected people to be, uh, and, and they volunteered. It was, a, there was some criteria to be the core of the new board. So when I started as CEO, I only had seven people on the board. Good point. And I will say one thing I'm super proud of is they were all white people. And one of the first commitments was that we need to have a more diverse board. Now, nice. you know, this is 20 years ago, Pat. Right. And right. we drew a line in the sand and we went out and and they they wanted to build the board to 15 in a year. But in that first year, we did that. We It was a, a big part of our job, but we prioritized it. We uh, brought on eight new board members, and they met all of our strategic criteria, including diversity. Yeah, well done. Yeah, so I had, in some ways, I was really spoiled because I had a great board. I loved my board. And when I left and went out into the consulting world, you know, 19 years ago, it actually struck me how much pain was going on between executives and their boards. And that's what's motivated me to come down this path of how can I help people? Because I've seen what's possible. Indeed, I know what it's like to love your board and have a wonderful board that's really adding value for your nonprofit. Every board should be that. That should be the story we're telling when we talk about boards, not the stories we hear for the most part. Sad, Sadly, we do. And you're right. Your, your mission, it sounds like, is to replicate that experience you had, isn't it, Mary? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that others, and, and frankly, then they can focus on the mission that brings them to the nonprofit Absolutely. community anyway. Absolutely. Right. Well, Mary, I'm sure you talk to people as I do that are yes. thinking about getting into nonprofit leadership. Is there any other advice 
when someone approaches you like that, that you have to either a caution or an encouragement or perhaps some combination? I would say know yourself. Any leader needs to know yourself. Be realistic about your personal capacity. And unlike many of us from my generation of nonprofit leaders, guard your capacity and take care of yourself. Burning yourself out, sacrificing yourself on the author, uh, uh, excuse me, on the altar of nonprofit leadership and management serves no one. So you being resilient, strong leader is so important. So take care of yourself first, and then you will be able to give to others in the way that enriches you. Beautifully put, Mary. Great advice. If I can ask you, in addition to the wonderful advice you've already provided, a parting gift, in addition, of course, to your book, which we will happily promote, um, is there another book maybe that you have found meaningful to you that you recommend to nonprofit leaders? Yes, there is. And, and actually, I've drawn from it even in this conversation. It is called Group Alchemy, and it's about how to create a highly collaborative group and team. And uh, Deborah Pruitt wrote the book. She uh, has a PhD and she did research all over the world on effective groups. She's a cultural anthropologist. But this book is not academic. It's very practical. There are six elements of effective groups. Your work team, your board, any work group, you can benefit from the insights in this group. And I, it's the only book that I drew on and and uh, Deborah actually reviewed the my chapter on culture and was very helpful in my, frankly, distilling what's an extremely complex topic into some practical stuff, that's, because that's what you need is practical stuff, not love academic that. stuff out there. Love it. So I encourage you all. I uh, will happily lift that up. And, and I'm struck by our conversation that looking at boards differently, they're not just a governance entity, but a team. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a great and perhaps new perspective for many leaders to think about instead of that group that drives them crazy, but <laughs> understand the team dynamics. And as you have encouraged, there is something you can do about it. And I like, Mary, that you've, I think that's been the theme, right? You want to empower the nonprofit executive yeah. to to deal with this. I do. I do. All right. Well, people are going to definitely want to check all that you have uh, out Uh, Where can people find out more about you and the good work you're doing? Well, they can go to my website. My last name is spelled Highland, H-I-L-A-N-D. So they can go to highlandconsulting.org. It is an O-R-G, not a .com. Highlandconsulting.org, and they can find out anything they need to know about me. And also there's a a tab, Talk With Mary, if you want a free consultation, I'm free, you know very open to talking to you. You can get on my calendar there. Wonderful. And of course, Mary, we'll have the latest and greatest information on your book when this episode is published. So make sure you check out the show notes to learn about that and get a copy of Mary's new work. Mary, thank you again for joining me on the path. Oh, thank you so much, Pat. It was great to have this conversation. I so appreciate being invited to come and share some things with you. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mary as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you on your leadership journey, but perhaps also enhance your organization's approach to its board of directors. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, and you can find out more about Mary, her consulting practice, her podcast, and her upcoming book. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.